This is Joe Basso for Music Radar, the place for music makers, and I'm speaking with guitarist Paul Gilbert. Paul, how you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Your new album has a really interesting title. It's called Silence Followed by a Deafening Roar. It's an instrumental guitar album. How do you prepare for recording an album all instrumentals? Obviously, the writing is different than writing a songs with vocals. Yeah, I think, um, well, for the, any of my records have a lot of guitar on them, so... I have developed kind of a, a routine for preparation, and that is usually learning some kind of a classical piece, usually a piano piece, on the guitar, because it, it really gets, uh, gets my fingers warmed up and get, gets, me, um, gets my ears warmed up as well, and uh, sort of gives me a standard to, to try to live up to. Not that I can ever live up to, to Bach, but <laughs> at least it, uh, it, it sets my sights high. You worked with your wife, Emmy, on this record. She plays keyboards. What was that like, having to give her direction? <laughs> um, well, it's, it's very easy, because she's a great musician and has perfect pitch, has been playing classical piano since she was three. So, um, you know, a lot of times I'm, I'm actually asking her for direction. In a song like uh, Norwegian Cowbell, I basically had the intro and was stuck and didn't know where to go from there, and she came in and had some ideas, and, and within about within about five minutes we had a song so it's, it's nice to have um, you know somebody somebody in the house who's very musical and uh, for the for just the playing part of it I suppose some of the styles were kind of new for her because she you know having grown up with classical she had, hadn't played a lot of heavy rock or funk stuff before but I think funk especially she really likes um, you know the B3 organ is a lot of fun to play for yeah. her so on a song like the Bronx she had a great time she actually, actually drew blood she was doing so many organ glissandos, their hands were bleeding. I have never heard of an organist drawing blood before. That's a first. Well, she, uh, you know, she had to learn the, 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 the glissando techniques very quickly because she hadn't really played the organ much before. So she was, like, just doing it over and over again to perfect the, uh, you know, the sort of organish growls that you can get out of a B3, and mm -hmm. she did it about a, a thousand times in an hour, I think. <laughs> As we said, you know, instrumental albums are different from, you know, albums with vocals. Are there any instrumental albums that have served as benchmarks for you? I think the the most influential instrumental music for me was probably the Rush instrumentals that they, they would throw in occasionally on the their records in the 70s and 80s. Songs like YYZ or La Villa Strangiata. Um, I, liked, I liked those a lot. And also, the, a lot of the bands I was into as a kid had, even if they didn't do instrumentals, they had great instrumental sections. I mean, you know, every Van Halen song had an amazing solo. That's, sure. And then there was, you know, bands like UK that um, had a lot of great instrumental stuff. That was probably about as fusiony as my ear ear got. And and of course, classical music. You know, I listened to a lot of classical over the years. And Ingve too. Ingve was had some amazing stuff, and which was more sort of metal and classical put together. But I think, you know, the, the biggest thing was, is I, a lot of, um, you know, the, the guitar instrumental music that, that people were probably the most familiar with was what sort of began in the mid-80s, you know, with, with Joe Satriani and Steve Vai and Tony McAlpine and Vinnie Moore, you know, all the shrapnel people. And I sort of stubbornly held out, you know, trying to be in a, in a band with a vocalist, you know, being in Racer X and Mr. Big. And, and uh, you know, it wasn't until I did my previous album get out of my yard that i sort of decided okay you know i'll, I'll see what i can conjure up in, in this in this uh forbidden art form of instrumental guitar 
and uh, it was a lot more fun than I expected, and the uh, audience reacted really well to it, and I actually liked to listen to it, so it surprised me. I'm curious as to your, your reticence, because you are such a great player and have had such a claim that you held out for so long. I, I just always wanted to be a rock musician. <laughs> I didn't, to, to me, there was always a little bit, a little bit of, I don't know, like, Star Trek Dungeons and Dragons nerdiness <laughs> to, um, to to being an instrumental guitar player. You know, it like wasn't quite as cool as as having David Lee Ross in the background hooting and hollering. <laughs> and, uh, and and that's just you know that's what I grew up listening to was bands with vocalists. So I was I think that's where the stubbornness came from. I just you know was trying to follow my heroes. And uh, but you know <laughs> it took me a long time to to to, to you know, build up the courage to try something else. But when I when I finally did, I mean, like the the um, the, the the best the, the best experience I had from it was almost immediately after doing my first instrumental record. I, I found myself on the G3 tour, right? And that was really 100 percent a great time. The audience was great. Um, the two other guys on the, on the bill, Joseph Triani and John Petrucci, were both fantastic. You know, in backstage, in person, and on stage, jamming. The whole thing was just great. You're, you're no slouch, of course, on the guitar, but was it a little daunting um, going on a tour with two heavyweights, uh, you know, like, like Joe and uh, John? Well, it was, it was really inspiring. Um, I mean, for me, it was the ultimate practice motivation because I would do, I, I was the opener, so I'd do, the, I'd do my show first. And then, uh, there would be about an hour and a half, uh, you know, approximately, where where uh, John and both and Joe would do their sets, and then at the end we'd all do the jam session. So I had about an hour and a half after playing my set when I was all you know all warmed up and uh, to get ready for the next part. And that, those were some of the most intense practice sessions that or practice <laughs> sessions I've ever had. You know, just really inspiring and motivating backstage, knowing that that's coming up and. Uh, you know, preparing for the for the, the jams that we do, and I really built my vocabulary and and phrasing techniques. Really got a lot better from that. One of the fascinating parts about listening to this record is tr- sort of sussing out the influences that are all over it. Like on the title track, to my ears, it seems like you're influenced by the Edge a little bit. I was hoping you'd say that. Oh, there you go. You know what? I've never sat down with a U2 record and figured out a lick, um, but. It's a great sounding band, and I've certainly listened to them a lot. And just the, I'm trying to think where that song, I mean, that song began as a, as a heavy metal riff. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the part that it, that it ends up being kind of the verse, you know, is much more or less sort of a Queensryche kind of a riff, I'd say. But, you know, looking for something to contrast it, uh, I found myself playing these chords, and, you know, it's, and the, just the texture that I found myself going towards was definitely more the edgy. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, so it was. It was just sort of where my ear led me, but uh, I was happy to have been led there. And in the the song, uh, and pr- help me with the pronunciation, Udomania Overture. Oh, the Udai. Well, I have no idea. I just I'm just, I'm guessing it's it's the word is probably pronounced Udaimonia. Okay. The riff is based around uh, harmonics, which also sounds you know vaguely edge like. Oh, well, there's so many riffs in that song. That's that's sort of an insane yeah. arrangement because I, I, I wrote it very much sort of stream of consciousness. I just you know began with that first 
riff, and it, it just you know went went from there. And I kept sort of planning on going back and, and making an arrangement where things would repeat, you know, like they would in a pop song. And by the end of it, I thought, you know what, I just I like it like this, where it just keeps going to a new part and a new part, and it never goes back. So it's uh, it's definitely a journey for the year. The very intro, which is this insane two-handed thing, was the, was actually the last thing I wrote for it because that <laughs> that was that was sort of fulfilling the the uh, shred guitar obligation because I, especially on the last record, the Get Out of My Yard, I did this crazy thing with a human capo and a three-string guitar tuned in octaves, and it really was a a fa- sort of face-melting piece of guitar. And I thought, what can I do on this one? It's got to have something that that will melt some faces. So uh, that became the beginning of the song. But the, the rest of it was, was written in about, I don't know, 20 minutes. It was really uh, just, you know, sp- sort of spilled quickly out of my brain. One of the most rocking songs on the record is uh, Norwegian Cowbell, which sounds a little like there's some ELO uh, influence in, in there, the, their song uh, Do Ya. Oh, yeah. Well, well, there's all kinds of classic guitar riffs that have those holes in them. You know, there's like Stone in Love by Journey. And, yeah. You know, about about just about every ACDC song ever written and uh, I'm trying to think I think that song was inspired by a deadline which was um, <laughs> I, I sort of make I have always have my official deadline from the record company but in order to make that work I end up uh, inflicting artificial deadlines on myself and one of them is I, uh, I'll have my drummer Jeff Bowders come over a few times a week and I know when he's coming over and usually you know I want to have something prepared play with him and you know, I'll know he's coming over at seven o'clock at, at night, and and right around six forty-five, I'll, I'll I'll have that the panic will set in, and I'll realize I I really don't have anything that I'm excited about that's that's any good. Jeff's coming over. I've got to have something cool to to play with him, and in that last fifteen minutes, I'll I'll write you know entire songs and the best riffs that I'll that I'll be able to come up with you know from that fear and panic and and impending deadline. So that was one of them. <laughs> that song. It was like, oh my God, Jeff's coming over. I've got to have something cool. So that came from from just panic and and desire to have something cool to play with Jeff. It's funny when you listen to a record, you you pick apart the chemistry that you can hear uh, in the music, and it, it seems like you and and, and Jeff have a, a really good rapport with each other. Well, Jeff, Jeff's an, of course an amazing drummer, but one of the things that he he really does well is I um, I recorded the way I actually produced the album was. After writing the demos and having the basic arrangements, I um, laid down a click track and recorded all the guitars, and uh, actually overdubbed the drums and bass at the end. And when I do that, basically, you know, all these guitars are keeper guitars, are the ones that are going to go on the record, and they're, you know, with the click. And I just give the, I make a, you know, a CD of that for Jeff, mm-hmm. so he's got about a week where he can play with the real guitars, and he's great at at like coming up with things that um you know that i wouldn't have wouldn't have thought of but but you know maybe i'll do a there's some guitar part that will inspire a fill and then he'll play along with me and it's something that's you know that never would have happened live you know or, or that i wouldn't even have, have planned on you know it, was, it would just be beyond me to plan on on that level of complexity and but because he's got a week to work on the stuff and <laughs> and works on it pretty hard i'm guessing you know, we get some really magical moments, and you know, when we do go to play it live, it's, it's really a blast to reproduce that. I love your version of "I Still Have That Other Girl," which is an Elvis Costello and Burt Bacharach song. I take it you're a big fan of Elvis Costello's. Oh, and Burt Bacharach too. Well, that that record that 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 song came from 
painted from memory, are, right? Painted from memory. Yeah, is uh, one of the one of the most amazing pop albums. Um, it uh, actually it, it's it's a very depressing album. <laughs> all, all these songs of lost love and heartache, and and uh, I, by coincidence, I uh, I got that album right when I was getting a divorce. So it was oh, no. like a great soundtrack to to, uh, to to misery and drama and heartache. And uh, but regardless of that, I think you know wherever you, wherever you are in your life, you could enjoy the, the great music on that record. And uh, I actually I um, that particular song I, it's a it's you know the original version is mostly a, a, it's a piano song. Yeah. And I had learned it on piano, and I was just you know I just for my own enjoyment, I was just playing it at home and trying to sing it. And I can't sing as high as Elvis Costello. He's got a higher range than I can. So it's it's always frustrating when you're when I'm playing a song and I can't hit the high notes and. <laughs> And uh, I thought, man, if I play it on guitar, those notes will be no problem. You know, they're all easy to hit on a gu- on a guitar. And actually, after I learned it, I thought I'm going to even raise it up a little bit. You know, I can play it in a higher key. So that's um, that was that was sort of one of the joys of doing an instrumental album is that the 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 limits that I have as a vocalist, which uh, you know, if 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 my if my voice was the guitar, it would basically be I would only have the the sixth and fifth strings. You know, it would just be like cutting off the first four strings because I just don't have those high notes available to me. Where on a guitar, I, I do, and I can hit any, you know, pretty much any note I want. And so it's really liberating to uh, to have all those notes available and, and have any melody that I can hear in my head as possible. A large part of your career has revolved around playing instrumentals of blinding speed. When did you realize as a kid, I guess, when did you realize that you were pretty fast, and, and, and who influenced you in that way? Well, I think I was in such a small town that, that um, you know, I, I remember playing with some other guitar players and local guys, and, and you know, I could do, like, the Johnny Be Good, or I guess maybe it wasn't Johnny Be Good, it was, like, the um, like the Ace Freely solo in, um, I think it's either She or Parasite, mm-hmm. off, the, off the first Kiss Alive album. Where he just sort of does the uh, like the Chuck Berry band, the and takes it up chromatically, I think, and and then does it as fast as he can at the end, and that was sort of my fast leg. But I was, you know, I was 11 or 12 years old, and and there was always guys that were older than me that could play much faster. But I think it wasn't my my technique that was really developed compared to anybody else that was around me. It was it was my ear. Um, and and when I would see the older guys that could play faster, I could hear that they were playing fast, but I could also hear that there, that there was a they weren't really playing very clean. And and as much as I the competitive part of me wanted to like start moving my hands as fast as I could and play fast too, um, as soon as I started doing it, I, I just heard like ah oh, it's a mess. You know I'm, I just gotta wait until I can do this right. And so I, I my ear had had high standards for myself and it. It took a long time. I mean, it was really... I get these emails now from kids like, I've been playing two years and I'm doing this sweep picking. I'm like, oh my God, you know. I mean, maybe they're, maybe they're, uh, you know, they're child prodigies, but I'm just imagining this, this, this messy, you know, I know it's, you know, to, to play at that level after two years is just unrealistic, I think. At least for me, you know, it was, for me it was easily four years before I could do anything resembling a fast lick and really eight years before my picking was together at all. You know, and I, I don't want to make it sound like it was a grueling experience. I mean, I enjoyed every step of it because the things that I were was playing, even though they were simple, they sounded good. I mean, that was kind of the my path. Is I, would, I would just look at 
the things that I could master in a day or two, which might be like a Steve Miller song. You know, I remember doing you know, Take the Money and Run by Steve Miller or uh, It Don't Come Easy by Ringo Starr. You know, songs like that, that's, that's, that's the things I was working on. And you know, Shred was a gradual process. At this point in your career and at the age you're at, do you feel sometimes that people concentrate on speed too much? Is it a cul-de-sac at times? I don't know. I mean, everybody's different. I mean, I, I've, if, if anything, the, the people that I run into are, are usually students. Like when, I, when I'll, I'll go down and do a bunch of private lessons at GIT. And uh, to tell you the truth, the, the people that I have been, I've taught there are great. It really is a high level, much much higher than I expected, and it's it's pretty stunning actually how how good people are. Um, so I mean maybe it's it, maybe the level is high because it's it's a music school, and you know people who go there are, are serious about it, and that that's really what I enjoyed. The, one of the things I enjoyed the most when I was a student there was just everybody was serious about it, and until I went there, that was the that was the the biggest struggle was finding other musicians who were who really were serious about doing it as a, you know, as, a, as their life, you know, as their life passion. That said, how do you keep your speed chops up? Do you have specific routines, patterns that you play? Um, that's not, that's not, it's not really that big of a deal. I mean, I guess some of the licks, like, probably the, 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 the lick that I'm most fearful of that is... There's this uh, old Mr. Big song called Colorado Bulldog mm-hmm. sure. that has this kind of insane intro. And uh, I also use that lick at the end of a Racer X song called Skit Scat Wah, which I was actually performing on the last G3 tour. And that's one of those licks where i got to put my foot up on the monitor so I can, mm-hmm. I can raise my guitar up and, and have it at jazz heights and, and uh, the planets will ho- hopefully will align and I can get that lick right. But most of the stuff that I play is really... I, I try to choose things that I can play with my guitar down relatively low and not having to look and not having to be a statue. You know, I, I, I try to pick stuff that, that is comfortable enough for me that I can still rock and, and don't have to um, you know, spend a lot of time maintaining. And really, the, I do practice a lot, but when I practice, it's not... I, I hardly ever sit there with a metronome and, and practice scales. That's just you know, excruciating for the, for the ear. Who do you play along to these days? Is there anybody new making music that that you really like a lot oh let's see pull up my itunes <laughs> i mean I'll, I'll make um i'm trying to think what i play with really the, the to me the some of the most valuable playing is when i give lessons is i, I, I try to talk as little as possible and because usually the lessons are maybe a half an hour mm-hmm. so i'll just um, almost immediately try to get into a jam session because I, I think that's that's fun for the the student because they can they can first of all be heard. If I just sit there and and talk and demonstrate for a half an hour, you know maybe they'll it'll be a little bit interesting. But you know I, I think I mean I, I know when I like when I met Van ha- Eddie Van Halen, I I really wanted to to jam with him and play with him and you know, we didn't get to but you know we just ended up sort of listening to demos. But to me I, I want some communication. That's that's really satisfying is to is to have a, uh, an opportunity to, to musically communicate. And so when I do these lessons, it's, it ends up being hours and hours of, of jamming with different musicians who have different feels and different influences. And, and really, G3 was the same thing, you know, having these great jam sessions with, with great musicians. And, that, and that's how I learned to play, too. I mean, when I was a kid, you know, I certainly did a lot of bedroom practicing, but I've been in rock bands since I was 11 years old. And and would just 
jam, you know, take Stranglehold by Ted Nugent and play for hours and hours and hours. And it's probably why I can't hear anymore. You know, I've, got, I've got hearing loss and a lot of, you know, hopefully musical depth from having done that. And to me, that's still the most fun and the most valuable way to, uh, to really build useful musical skills. You mentioned your, your hearing loss. How bad is it? What, what, at what stage are you at? Uh, I mean, basically, it's, I, I hate to say it, but I enjoy it a lot of times because it makes the world a very peaceful place. <laughs> you know, I don't hear all the... <laughs> I briefly got a hearing aid, and it was just like, ah, the world's too noisy. Get this thing out. But basically what I have to do is I, just anybody who, I, who I'm talking to, I have to train them. You know, anybody new that I meet, I have, to, I have to sort of announce I have hearing loss. You know, please stand to the right side of me and talk as clearly and as loudly as you can. And uh, you know, if I go to a loud restaurant, it's 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 you know, I can't really hear anybody unless they're screaming into my ear, and that's no fun. So I tend to just you know, if I go out, I I, I seek out quiet places, and you know, I have to if, if somebody's you know in an, in the in the room and they're and they're talking in the other direction, you know, I have to say, hey, you know you're going to do that i'm not going to be able to hear you have doctors been able to pinpoint what caused it was it loud amps was it headphones oh, what's not there's no mystery i mean it's you know i've been a, playing loud guitar since i was 11 years old so and i think a lot of i mean of course i know what i've done i mean i've i used to when i was a kid i used i loved the sound of the electric guitar so much that in rehearsals i would stick my head right in front of my 412 cabinet whoa and just and just soak it in. I loved it so much. Just, just listen to that sound, and I just stick my head in there. And uh, you know, and and then later, you know, when music became my job, and I was, you know, that was what I would do for a living. You know, I'd get these crazy deadlines right to finish up an album in a month, and you know, I'd be editing with headphones on, you know, doing Pro Tools edits, you know, for twelve hours a day. And uh, you know, that doesn't help either. Let's talk about Mr. Big a little bit. You guys okay. had, you guys had a lot of success. But I get the feeling that your split with the band was acrimonious. What were the reasons for your leaving? Oh, it was we weren't having any fun anymore. It, um, you know, musically was great, and it was incredible to have that much success playing all these big places all over the world. But uh, you know, we it was just sort of the stereotypical, you know, every member in his own dressing room, not talking to each other, and even even that. I could kind of survive because the music was so good, but um, in the in the end, it, it started to get in the way of the music because you have to you have to be able to communicate enough to make some musical decisions. You know, you have to be able to say, you know, let's use this song or not use this song, or, or you know, just do basic make basic band decisions. And it was really getting uh, getting difficult. I think the if anything, I you know, we were kind of a democracy, and that's that's difficult. I think it would have yeah. been easier if. If we would have just elected Billy our leader, because I think he was smarter than any of us, and <laughs> we would have just said, "Billy, we'll do what you say," because <laughs> he was he was generous enough to let us be a democracy, and I think uh, half the time we didn't know who who was driving the bus. You guys had a lot of success uh, throughout the world, but in Japan, you guys became superstars. Is there any one reason you can pinpoint to that? That's a good question. Um, I, I it, it was really sort of. You know, I mean, I mean in, a, in a good way, it was confusing to me in that I, I wasn't expecting us to be any bigger there than anywhere else, but it, for some reason we were. Um, there was no obvious reason to me, because we were playing the same show there as we were anywhere else. Um, I mean, we're certainly inspired by the 
reaction of the audience because it was really good, so maybe that helped a little bit. But um, I think it was something more than that. I think um, just the, the, you know, the cultural climate of the time in Japan just happened to match what we were doing. You know, I don't, I don't think it was anything more than, more than that. I think was, you know, what, what people wanted, we happened to have. But it was, certainly was nothing. We didn't set out to be big in Japan. We were just fortunate that it happened. Playing the guitar with a, a, a power drill. It was a power drill, right? Yeah. How did that start? That started as, when I was playing in Racer X in the old days, in the L.A. clubs, we, uh, we didn't tour. We just played L.A. over and over again because we lived here. And uh, with the same, basically the same audience would come to see us at every show. So we felt sort of an obligation to, to change something or improve something in the show every time we played. And, you know, that's not easy. I mean, most bands, you know, the tour, you put together one show and you, you, know, you play it over and over. But we, we had to basically reinvent ourselves every time. So in order to do that, we, we just tried to come up with anything we could to be entertaining. And, of course, we were becoming known as a, a band with fast guitar players. And I thought that a, um, you know, playing with a drill would be a sort of a great, uh, insane comedic parody of fast guitar playing. And uh, and at the same time, pretty cool. So we uh, we put three picks on the end of a drill, and you know I just I just built some new <laughs> some new pick bits the other day. So it's just, it's still a lot of fun. Now I always got that it was kind of a joke, but do you get the feeling that some people weren't in on it? Well, I think anytime you uh, you, you make humor out of the subtleties of an art, you know not everyone's going to get it. But that that doesn't matter. It's it's, it's and and it's it's funny. I was the other day. I was I was working out some of the tablature for uh, a new DVD I'm working on, and I um, I do some sweep picking techniques in it. And I thought, you know, I, I almost want to write as a as a performance note that the that the sweep picking should be performed ironically, <laughs> because really I I wrote I wrote them as ironic sweep picks because I I in, in general I don't like the sound of sweep picking. And and I just put them in there because it was such a this sort of fit with what I was doing and but I, it was you know with very much tongue in cheek but I thought you know really when it comes down to it they were ironically composed but when I performed them I absolutely performed them sincerely and so and so I decided not to put the note in there because it, all these things that I, I might get some humor out of when I invent them um, when I actually got to perform it I totally mean it and and there's no you know, there's no spinal tap left. You know, I I I mean it with all my heart. But it, but sometimes when I'm composing it, I'm sort of cracking up because it, you use more of the thinking part of your brain, or at least I do when I'm when I'm writing stuff. It's much, you know, it's it's you're not on stage, you're not in the moment. You know, you're just sort of planning, and that's when uh, I tend to see the humor and, and the spinal tap of it a little more. But when I'm out there, you know, I, I'm feeling it. It's rock and roll, and, and there's it's it's all <laughs> it's a lot more serious. Now, you've been involved with uh, speed metal, you've been in a big arena band, you've been in tribute bands, you've done instrumental tours like G3. Is there a kind of genre, a kind of form that you haven't uh, done yet that you're looking forward to? Well, I, 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 um, it's always a balance between what you want to do and what you actually can do. I mean, if, if I could ever go to a music store and, and buy myself a, a Robin Zander or a Freddie Mercury or a you know, Robert Plant and install it in my, uh, in my, uh, in my vocal cavity or whatever, wherever you put it, install it in my body as a voice, 
and suddenly be able to sing like one of those guys, you know, that would take me somewhere that I would love to go, but, but you know, in, until uh, that's possible, I really, you know, can't. And so I, I guess what I'm discovering, you know, more recently is that I'm sort of going with my strengths of what I'm able to do. Um, you know, I, I did a lot of solo records where I tried to sing, and, you know, did as well as I could, and once in a while it's all right, but really as a guitar player is where my strength lies. And, uh, and so I, that's been really... A, a lot of pleasure to to go on the stage and do what I do best and not have to struggle with with singing. You know, I love to sing and I love listening to vocals, but it's it, I just wasn't born with with the kind of instrument that that I I wish I had. Whereas with guitar, it it it's really comfortable for me to play guitar. It really feels natural and and I don't feel the same kind of limits, you know, so it's nice to be able to you know, write and play and perform music where those limits are taken away, and I can just sort of do whatever I can imagine. We now come to the portion of the interview where uh, we have Music Radar readers asking questions. And the good news, Paul, is you are very popular. We have a lot of questions for you. Oh, cool. So uh, if you're ready, yeah, um, I sure am. a reader who goes by the name McGuffin asks, how do you stay motivated? Uh, well, one thing I do is I uh, give lessons. That's an incredible motivation. And... Uh, you know, of course, any anything you have that involves other people, any performance, whether it's for uh, one, whether you're performing for your girlfriend or whether you're performing for a hundred thousand people, knowing that there's a, a specific time when you're going to have to get on stage or or pick up an instrument and play something is really motivating. Um, but to me, having especially private lessons where it's one on one, and you're in a room with another musician and you're you know either working out. Techniques, or or even better, just doing a jam session, th- that to me is an incredibly motivating because there's another there's there's the energy of another musician there, and uh, you know you're, you'll never fall asleep when you're doing that, and, and you're just in music in its purest form. Whammy Man asks, why did you change to playing a fixed bridge instrument? Oh well, of course when I, when the first Van Halen album came out, everybody, including me, wanted to have a a whammy bar. You know, I went through my my uh, my time of of, of of whammies, especially with Racer X, but um, it got to the point I think because I actually started playing guitar before that first Van Halen album, mm-hmm. so really my formative years were on a on a non tremolo guitar, and that just you know what, sometimes what you begin with it's hard to escape those roots, sure. so uh, that's always what I was the most comfortable with, and really. I mean, of course, Van Halen. I mean, he, he's a master of the whammy, but he also has great left-hand vibrato. You know? Yeah. And um, but that was always my favorite sound. In the, in the end, was you know, guitar players like Robin Trower or Mick Ralphs or Mick Ronson or Brian May. You know, the, the kind of '70s rock vibrato is um, is arguably my favorite thing about the electric guitar. And uh, and sometimes when I have a whammy bar, I, I tend to get a little lazy, and especially on the high E string, I'll. I'll start, um, you know, using the whammy more and more. So I, I like to, I like to ha- not have it to rely on it and just use, you know, purely the vibrato in my left hand. I, fe- I feel I'm, a, I'm a little more connected to it that way. Along the same lines, uh, a reader by the name of Dee Dee asks, "When are you going to get some proper f holes cut into your guitar?" <laughs> <laughs> well, the, it's funny. The f holes were, were sort of a way to separate myself from, um, from the gem. Uh, because, right. or, or, or even the RG, because I guess um, when I when I got my first Ibanez RG guitar in the late '80s, I, I fell in love with it. I loved the 
the the body style it just felt great it sounded great really balanced and and uh, I just wanted to play that guitar forever but I wanted to somehow cosmetically set myself apart from um, Steve Vai who was really popular at the time and uh, had the the gem guitar which is basically the same body style and I you know I, I at first I, I was really reluctant to, to play even the RG because I, I thought I don't want to be copying Steve Vai right but it was but damn it it was such a good guitar I had to play it <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't help myself so um I, I thought Ethel's were interesting because Ethel's, of course, are associated with classical music, like on a cello or a violin, or uh, or on a jazz box, you know, right. a big hollow body jazz guitar. So to me, to put them on a on a heavy metal guitar was was sort of a, an interesting contradiction, and that was a nice way of hiding the switch and the knob, mm-hmm. um, so the guitar became very streamlined in its appearance. I, I do once in a while play hollow bodies. I have an old Ibanez uh, 1979 artist that I bought on eBay that just sounds amazing. Oh, wow. It's a lot of fun to have that on stage because, um, or really in any situation, be- because it's, it resonates without having to have as much distortion. So um, you can get uh, you know a clearer, more audible sound without all the fuzz. And I use that a lot in the studio. Live, not, not quite as much, just because uh, you, know, you do tend to have feedback issues when you, when you get it up really loud. But... Uh, you know, at a at a medium at a, at a medium volume, it's, it's the things that really a joy to play. You know who asks? Will there be any new Racer X activity in the next two three years? Uh, I think I, I think I might know who you know who is. Oh well, I always hope so because Racer X is a really enjoyable band. Both uh, both the, the the guys in the band are great friends of mine. We've been friends since we were teenagers, and and musically, it's it's Racer X is an opportunity for me to. You know, again, I don't have to worry about singing. I can just concentrate on playing guitar, and because uh, Jeff Martin is a fantastic singer, and he, he you know he does that job in the band, and I can go back and do sort of my one of my early passions, which was you know kind of early '80s heavy metal, and that's that's what I try to do in Racer X. That's what we started doing, and and what I you know continue to try to uh, keep alive when when we do a record. You know, lately I've I've been insanely busy doing these instrumental records and and doing all this new touring that I've been doing, and uh, also throwing in you know new instructional DVDs in the side. So it's just been a a matter of of time because uh, you know to have the inspiration to do any records, you know you have to have you have to have physical energy left. Sure. And at the end of these projects, I'm just wiped out. <laughs> um, but I you know hope to do it someday because it's 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 really uh, great to get together with those guys and 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 really an enjoyable kind of music. We were speaking about uh, singing, and Nightfly01 says, when are you going to sing next? I'm dying for another alligator farm. That was an awesome record. Ah, uh, well, I'm glad he likes it. Um, I mean, as much as I whine and complain about my own voice, it, it is, you know, for, I have worked with a lot, and I am, you know, I am more familiar with it than I've ever been. But I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> I may just let people who have better voice than me Sing more. I mean, I think I'll always always be singing in there somewhere, doing some harmonies or, you know, singing some of my old favorites on the tour. But and, and actually, one of the things that makes my voice better is these instrumental songs because it, it gives me a physical break. Uh, you know, I don't have to. I can I can have a little rest in between the uh, the vocal songs. So when I do go to sing, I've got a little more power available to me. But you know, uh, Paul, I, I think you're too hard on yourself because there are so many great singers. Um, God, I'm thinking of you know Bruce Springsteen or Bob Dylan or, or so many people that people would say they're not a technically great singer, but they bring they bring the personality through. Well, that's that's true. I mean, I, I you know I can listen to a lot of singers who aren't. I mean, I, 
the, the lot of some singers who are technically great. I mean, Celine Dion is un, indisputably a great technical singer, but you know, I can't stand to listen to her. Sure. But but I think it's a matter of character, and I'm not particularly fond of the character of my voice. You know, I, I wish I liked it more. I mean, it's not again, it's not it's not terrible. I'm 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 willing to put up with it, but it's um, you know, it, but it, it's it's not something that I. You know, I don't record myself and play it back and just go, yeah, that's the sound. <laughs> um, you know, and I wish it was. And when I listen to Jeff Martin or I listen to Eric Martin, you know, the other singers I've worked with, the great singers, you know, they step up, step up to the mic and it's just, you know, beautiful from the first note. Imported Carlos Presents asks, using a drill in the drill song was a great idea. Have you ever thought of using any other small vibrating devices to play the guitar with? Hmm. Ah, uh, let's see. Well, on this... On this new album, um, I, I came up with the title, Silence Followed by a Deafening Roar, before I had written the song or the music. And the, the title sort of obligated me to create some kind of deafening roar. And I thought, what am I going to use to do that? And I ended up using a, a violin bow, you know, a la Jimmy Page. And actually, you know, when, when Jimmy Page uses it, he's, he's a virtuoso. I mean, I tried to duplicate his solo that he does in Days Confused when I did the Led Zeppelin tribute with with Mike Portnoy a few years ago, and it's it's not easy. It's 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 you know you don't just rub it across there. It's 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 uh, it's hard to make it anything. Uh, it's hard to get clean notes out of it. Basically, it's a really noisy thing. But uh, I used it on that on the title track, and it, it came out great. It's a lot of fun, and visually it looks great too. So that's it vibrates only because it's you know it hits the string and, and starts bouncing around. But I suppose it's not elec- electrically powered. As in terms of electrically powered stuff, um, the, the drill has been satisfying enough for me not to look not to look further. Yeah, so, something tells me he was looking for uh, he he was going for another vibrating device, but uh, yeah, I always thought a tree chipper would be interesting, <laughs> but you could only do it once. <laughs> you had mentioned uh, you were working on a DVD, and uh, Axe Hoffman asks if you have any plans to re- release uh, any new DVDs in the future. Yeah, I uh, I just made one that sort of. Um, will be the accompanying DVD to the Silence Followed by a Deafening Roar CD. Okay. And uh, it's, uh, it's another epic. <laughs> I spent uh, probably the most, most time I've ever spent on, a, on making a DVD on this one. I did uh, a lot more days of shooting. Um, of course, you know, so just one day of instructional stuff, but another day of uh, additional bonus stuff, both, uh, both, both musical and otherwise. And I also did uh, pretty extensive tablature for it, which I've never done before. And uh, well, I guess I've never done myself before. This I was really directly involved in to make sure that all the fingerings are, are very accurate to what I'm playing. And I'm also going to include the uh, the backing tracks from the record. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it's basically the stuff that I take out if I do a clinic tour. It's, you know, it's the, uh, a mix of the songs without the main guitar. And so I've had a, a lot of requests for that. And uh, so finally, it's, it'll be available. You'll be able to play along with the actual backing tracks of the record. And that should be out uh, hopefully in a few months. It's, but I'm, I'm a few days away from finishing it. Tuscan777 wants to know why you switched from Laney to, uh, to Marshall Amps. Oh, well, it's been a, it's been a huge, uh, what would you call it, a long journey from Marshall to Marshall because I, I began with Marshall. Um, the first two Racer X albums were both recorded with um, some Marshalls that I had back in the day, and my my best Marshall then was it was like a uh, it was a 50 watt that was made in, uh, in 1974, mm-hmm. and it was just you know the magic head, and it got stolen, 
And after it was stolen, I, you know, I, at that time the rack rack gear, you know, like the ADA preamp, had just right. been invented, and I was kind of curious about that. So I sort of took a detour with that for a few years, and then, uh, you know, just was constantly searching for different amps. And finally, I stumbled upon the uh, the Laney, which um, the, the Laney has a very like accurate almost machine-like distortion, which works very well for a lot of the fast-picking stuff. You know, it, it's, it's, um, it makes it almost easier to play that stuff because it's so accurate-sounding. But I, tend, I started to really crave more harmonics and a more rich, kind of natural 70s sound. And so I... Um, and also, I was playing with G3 and, and sort of A-B-ing my, my sound with the sound of, of Satriani and, and John Petrucci every night. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, really wanted something just with more uh, more round I mean, it's hard to describe sound with words you know but just something you know bigger and more resonant more full of harmonics so um, I bought a uh, Marshall Vintage Modern Combo and uh, tried it out you know on, on tour which is really the perfect test because I could really crank it up every night and I just fell in love with it and so um, you know after road testing it I decided to, to switch to Marshall and, and endorse the stuff and now I've got a couple different heads of theirs and they're all great just they really give me exactly what I want, which is that, that 70s sound, you know, as much distortion as I'd ever want, but with, with a great tone behind it all. And finally, Duda Ferris asks, do you regularly warm up before playing? Oh, of course. I mean, the, the, the music I'm playing is, is pretty, pretty demanding on the fingers, so um, I absolutely warm up to get the, the muscles ready for that. And I also warm up... I sort of have to warm up my inner clock. So one of the things I do is I just try to play a song or something that's in time. Because, mm-hmm. of course, when you do hand warm-ups, you tend to just play as fast as you can and, and try to get the muscles moving. But uh, I make it a point to, to find something rhythmic to play. And it doesn't have to be fast at all. It just has to sort of get my, my inner rhythmic clock um, you know, started and in sync and you know, get my timing working and uh, that that's really important otherwise i go on stage and i'm just a you know a mess of fast licks that don't make any sense so you so you try to center yourself yeah you, and and that's really involved with rhythm and uh you know so it, I'll, I'll just pick some kind of r- rhythmic pattern or or just try to improvise rhythmically you know try to play a solo but really make a strict rule not to play anything that doesn't have a, a very obvious rhythm to it well, Paul, I've had a great time talking to you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. This has been a fantastic interview. This is Joe Basso for Music Radar, the place for music makers. I've been speaking with Paul Gilbert. And uh, again, Paul, thank you very much. No worries. Thanks, and uh, keep playing. <laughs>